You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our text today is from Philemon, beginning in verse 1. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord." For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me. For I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Well, in crafting a statement of faith of sorts... The early Christians penned what's now known as the Apostles' Creed. And we read it together as a church every time we baptize new members into the body of Christ. And as a whole, it serves as a kind of summary for for the basic and most fundamental tenets of the Christian faith. Each of the three sections of the creed begins with the phrase, I believe. And in the third section, Christians affirm that I believe in the communion of saints. What the creed is saying here is that when we become Christians, we're bound together uh, to Christians around the world and throughout history by something far greater than our own affinities, right? You may love basketball. 
which means we would get along great and we'd have plenty to talk about and even things to do when we're together. But we can't really call that communion because that's only a relationship marked by common interest. No, the creed is communicating that we have actual fellowship with one another. We have communion and unity with other believers when we have faith in Christ. And today we're looking at an often neglected letter of Paul's to a man named Philemon. Here we see Paul the pastor and fellow worker for Christ laying out the practical implications of how the gospel works itself out in the lives of Philemon and Onesimus, two people that he loves. And while the main purpose of the letter is to help Philemon come to the correct conclusion for how he ought to receive Onesimus back, the foundation of Paul's command is found in the communion of saints. Or we could call it fellowship. Fellowship with Christ, pouring over into fellowship with one another. And so my main point today is, is very, very simple. Yet it will continually challenge us for the rest of our lives. I'm actually sure of that. And it's this, to be in fellowship with Christ means to be in fellowship with the saints. And to be in fellowship with the saints means to treat the saints the same way Christ would treat them. Or we could put it another way, our love for one another proves our fellowship with Christ. The two are not disconnected. They are inextricably connected together. The one is a direct result of the other. And what we're going to learn in Paul's letter to Philemon is that if we've been united to Christ by faith, then it's going to show itself in how we live our lives together, how we treat one another. But before we look at fellowship and its implications in the Christian community, we need to first understand why Paul is even writing this letter. And so let's start there. Why is Paul even writing? So it's widely agreed upon that the letter to Philemon we're studying today was, was carried and delivered with Paul's letter to the Colossians. And we know this because if you remember from our time a few months ago in the book of Colossians, many of the same people in Paul's final greetings in chapter 4 there are also mentioned here in the opening verses as well as in the, the closing benediction at the end. And so the question is, why is Paul writing this additional letter? Well, basically, in the traditional view... Onesimus is a runaway slave that fled from Philemon and met Paul while Paul was in prison. And in this time, Paul converts Onesimus, becoming a father to him in the faith, verse 10 says. And now Paul is sending Onesimus back to Philemon. And while Paul never explicitly tells Philemon to actually free Onesimus from slavery once he's back, it seems that Paul sets up the situation in such a way that Philemon could draw no other conclusion but to do so. And listen, the Apostle Paul gives a pastoral masterclass here. This is something that has personally challenged me all week as I studied this text because it was showing me my own inadequacies as a pastor. But look with me beginning in verse 8. Paul writes, Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required... Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. See, Paul doesn't use his authority as an apostle or even his authority as a Christian to command obedience, right? That's what he means by enough in Christ. In fact, it's not even until verse 17, which is two-thirds of the way through the letter, that Paul's going to give Philemon a direction at all. 
And, and Paul's not acting this way because he's shy about throwing around his apostolic weight, right? If you read the rest of the New Testament, you know that's not true. He does that all over, but, but he doesn't do that in this letter at all. Why is that? See, what's interesting is that we learn from the way Paul treats Philemon here that, that Paul actually believes Philemon to be a mature child in the faith, right? Part of the frustration of parenting young children is that you simply fall into dishing out instructions and prohibitions that are rarely heeded. Please sit down. Please don't run with scissors. No, please don't put your foot on your brother's face. But Paul knows that you don't parent mature children in the same ways that you, Im- you parent immature ones. Of course, Paul knows that simply giving instructions to Philemon would be far easier, but he also knows that what's easy is often ineffective. Instead, with mature children, you can lay out the situation and expect that they'll come to the correct conclusion. And that's what we see here. Paul is expectant that Philemon will do what's right given the truth of the gospel in this circumstance with Onesimus. That's why Paul writes, uh, beginning in verse 15, for this reason, or for this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Paul wants, to see, Paul wants Philemon to see the beauty of God's sovereign hand working here for something far more important than lost labor. And he lays this all out so that Philemon will be ready to hear the command that's going to follow. But let's not miss the forest for the trees here. Paul believes that Philemon is required to do something. Paul doesn't think that this is some gray area where parties can agree to disagree on what the wisest course of action is in this situation. Just because he's treating Philemon as a mature child doesn't mean that he's not expecting obedience. He brings that up in verse 8. And then in verse 21, Paul says that he's confident not only that Philemon will be obedient, but he'll do even more than he asks. But this is the point. Paul doesn't just want cold obedience. He could get that with a command. He wants obedience from the heart. He wants Philemon to to witness the beauty of the gospel in this circumstance. And he wants Philemon to free Onesimus from slavery because he believes it to be right. And now I've used the word slave a few times already. And so let me take just a few minutes to, to deal with it. Because inevitably, due to where we are in history, uh, when we hear the word slave or slavery, we can't help but think of the atrocity of the transatlantic slave trade between the 16th and 19th centuries here in the United States. We, we can't help it, and so we must actively fight against what our minds jump to and attempt to think of slavery in the context of the first century Greco-Roman Empire. And so let me just point out a couple of important distinctions. First, in the ancient world, slavery was not race-based as it was in the United States. Nor was it, was it built off of man-stealing, which is explicitly condemned in Deuteronomy 24. While some people did become slaves through, through wars, uh, many others in, in the Greco-Roman world would have just sold themselves into slavery for the voluntary economic stability that it would have provided. And so that's the first thing. But secondly, slavery was an integral part of the economy and social fabric of the ancient world. 
Estimates vary, but some scholars note that up to a third of those in Colossae, which is where Philemon would have been, up to a third of them could have been slaves at one time. And in ancient slavery, people could have had a wide range of jobs across social classes. And so that means that there wasn't really solidarity amongst slaves as a whole. So people weren't going to be willing or interested that, that much in trying to upend the system. And all this goes to show that that because the institution was so pervasive, it was largely able to fly under the moral radar of the day. It's like the air that we breathe. It's everywhere, but we rarely take the time to think about it. Now, with this in mind, I, I do need to be clear about something. This does not mean that ancient slavery was a moral good. No image bearer of God ought to be the slave of another image bearer of God regardless of ethnicity or social status or gender or you name it, we all occupy the same dignified category of creation because humanity alone is said to have been created in God's image. But if that's true, why didn't Paul just explicitly condemn it here? I mean, come on, Paul. Didn't you know that this is going to be used for centuries to keep people in bondage? That people are going to point to this letter to say that you should be returning your runaway slaves. I mean, of all places, Paul, this was the spot. We don't really have the time to deal with it here, but to put it simply, Paul just wasn't interested in changing the social norms of the empire. He was interested in changing the norms of the church. And I believe a dive into Paul would show what theologian F.F. Bruce said on this, and that he says that, that while Paul doesn't directly denounce slavery or tell people to go to the polls to change it, as if they would have even had that opportunity in the ancient world, Instead, he says, quote, Paul's writing brings us into an atmosphere in which the institution of slavery could only wilt and die. Paul never tries to change society from the top down with political might like we do. The possibility would never have even entered his mind. Instead, Paul wants to see the whole Christian community living out its faith in fellowship with Christ and with one another. But the amazing thing is that in changing Christian communities, it will change the world. Just not from the top down, from the inside out. The very existence of the Christian church 2,000 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, a rural homeless teacher, is proof of that claim. A religion that was illegal, uh, that the empire tried to eradicate it, it now lives on and outlives it. All right, so with Paul's intentions for the letter and the context of the situation now in view, we can, we can now turn to the question of what does Paul even mean by fellowship here? Fellowship itself is simply association through common interest. It's whatever binds you to a particular community of people. For you, maybe, maybe it's CrossFit, or, or maybe it's, it's work or your education, or maybe it's Dungeons and Dragons. It's whatever your interests are. But author Alan Noble, he writes that, that it's through these affinities, through these common interests, that we create a sense of belonging for ourselves in the world. He says that fellowship brings about belonging. And he writes, quote, Belonging in a community is contingent on fitting with the way that you interpret the world. A church or any other institution or community can help you with the responsibilities of self-belonging so long as it does not infringe on your self-belonging. But when it does, there's always another community ready to welcome you. He's saying that to find purpose in our lives, 
We join communities with others who share our interests. But he's also saying that when we join communities for this reason, we'll also leave them as soon as those interests infringe upon our interests. Right? Even here, if you join this church because you really like the worship style, or maybe you thought this was a safe place to hide and not be called out on your sin. Or maybe because you really love the great preacher who isn't here today. Then you're going to leave when those things change. If I do this too many weeks in a row, you'll leave. Pastor H.B. Charles Jr. said it like this. He says, you want to figure out what your people worship? Change something. But as I noted earlier, true Christian fellowship is different. The communion of saints, as the creed puts it, doesn't have our affinities drawing us together, but it has Christ himself drawing us together. And not only does he bring us together, but he also regulates this community by his word. We are a true Christian community only insofar as we remain committed, not to our personal preferences, but to the standards of God communicated in the Bible. Standards of grace and truth. And fellowship in the church is fundamentally backwards to how fellowship operates in the world. And so where do we see that in the text? Uh, The word koinonia, which can be translated fellowship of the faith, shows up explicitly in verse 6. But in the ESV, it's translated sharing of your faith. Look with me beginning in verse 4. Paul writes, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. And I think from from these couple of verses here, we learn two things about fellowship. First, we learn that Christian fellowship means to have faith and love. Now, the wording is clunky in in, in English, but in verse 5, Paul says that to be in fellowship is to have faith in Christ leading you to love other Christians. Right, look again. He says, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And here in the original language, the faith is tied to the Lord Jesus and the love is tied to all the saints. But he words it in such a way that that we see that the two are necessarily tied together. And so he's saying you can't claim to have faith in Christ and not have love for the saints. But he's also saying that you can't truly love the saints and not have faith in Christ. The two are inextricably connected. And the Apostle John is going to say it like this. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and and do not practice the truth. He's saying if you claim to be united to Christ by faith, but your life doesn't match it, your life isn't producing the light of Christ's love to those around you, then you probably haven't believed at all. But then John goes on to say, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The scripture is telling us that the truth of our faith is visible in the actions of our love. Loving actions to those around you, and I would argue loving actions to those that you feel as though do not deserve it, these things always accompany true faith in Christ. If you love only those who love you, Christ says in Matthew 5, you have no reward because this is the way the world loves, not the way Christians love. 
And so that's the first thing. But the second thing that we learn about fellowship is that Christian fellowship is necessary for our Christian growth. I led a community group here for years. And, and, and I don't know about groups that you've been in the past, but in my group, I made everybody talk every single week. And, and to be honest with you, I did this because I'm selfish. See, I really believed that I can't learn certain things about God and, and how I'm supposed to live my life unless you teach them to me. I need you to speak to do that, though. And after years of instilling this into my group and seeing people become more and more comfortable opening up in that setting, I got to regularly observe one of my absolute favorite things. 18-year-old college student Amy would, look, would, would share what she's learning about in God's word and how it's impacting her life. And we would all learn from it. And then 70-year-old retiree Lee would share about what he's learning in God's word and what, how it's working itself out in his life. And we would all learn from it. And listen, I'm not 18 anymore, and I'm not 70 yet. We're all in different stages of life and come to Christ from different vantage points of ethnicity and upbringing, and you name it. But hear this. God uses the beautiful diversity of his bride to teach us things that we cannot know on our own. We need one another. And that's why Paul says in verse 6 that fellowship affects full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. The footnote in your Bible is going to tell you that that could be translated for the sake of Christ's service. See, fellowship undermines the Christians out there who say, I just don't need the church. All I need is me and my Bible. And they say that because they've been treating the God-designed messy. I'll give it, I'll give it to you. It's a messy community of the Christian faith uh, by worldly standards of simple affinity. Or maybe they've been hurt by members of the church or whatever else may cause them to say, I'm breaking ties with this. I don't need this in my life. It doesn't fit with what I want anymore, so I'm out. The New Testament says emphatically, no, that is not helpful. That's like cutting yourself off from food. Paul writes here that it's in the sharing of our faith, the partnership, the fellowship, the communion of saints that we have with one another that produces understanding about God's word and what he requires of us and how we are to live our lives here and now. I cannot underscore this enough. We need each other in order to grow as Christians and reach maturity. And in a sense, each of you are indispensable to me. I cannot become who God has said that I am without your involvement in my life. And the same goes for you with all of your brothers and sisters sitting around you. And so Christian fellowship has us being drawn together by Christ, not by our interests or, or affinities. And, and that means that it's honestly just going to be messy. And it's going to be hard. And maybe it's not going to be what you want at times, but it is always going to be exactly what you need. Because this community, in part, is the way that God intends to persevere each of us to the end. And so the, the, the next question is, though, how is fellowship applied in the Christian community? In our text today, we see fellowship with Christ, and therefore fellowship with one another, promotes at least three things. It's not an exhaustive list, but, but these at least three things are found here. Promotes humility, vulnerability, and self-sacrifice. And we're going to work through each of them, and then we're done. Let's start with humility. Um, to have slaves meant that Philemon would have been an important person. 
in, in that society. One who would have been over and above the rest in his house. And, and it's not a perfect analogy, but it's like a CEO and his or her contracted workers. The two parties just know that they're not on the same level. But what's interesting is that everywhere in the letter, Paul uses familial language, not hierarchical language. And in his book, Reading While Black, scholar Esau Macaulay uh, notes here that he says, Paul uses familial language calling Philemon his brother. Then he goes on to say the, the point is clear. Oneness in Christ transforms relationships. Society values those with power and status. Christians treat all people, slave, free, or prisoner, as family. And it's from this even footing of familial fellowship in Christ that Paul makes his first command in the letter in verse 17. And he tells Philemon to receive Onesimus back just as he would receive Paul. See, Paul knows that Philemon would never receive him back as a slave. He'd never welcome him as a slave into his house. And so in essence, he's telling Philemon that he shouldn't do the same with Onesimus. He shouldn't receive him back as a slave either. But fellowship here is going to require the humility of Philemon and Onesimus in this matter. First, for Onesimus, uh, as one New Testament scholar notes, Onesimus wasn't a slave on the run, as many would say. He had escaped successfully. He was a free man. And so imagine the humility that it would take for Onesimus to go back to Philemon, constrained by nothing but the love of Christ. Deep humility. But secondly, for Philemon, the social cost of treating Onesimus as he would Paul, setting him free and seeing him as a brother, a brother this would have been great to Philemon. Right? By receiving Onesimus back as a free man in fellowship, Philemon could be setting himself up for financial ruin because he likely had more slaves. And if he was unable to treat one image bearer of God as a slave due to his faith, then that would have a logical ripple effect for how he'd have to treat the other ones. He could be setting himself up for disaster. And Paul's just saying, follow me as I follow Christ. Right? Multiple times in the text, Paul says that he's a prisoner for Christ, not a prisoner to Christ. He's literally in prison because of his faithfulness to the gospel. And so he's saying, if I can do that, then you can do this. Because this is what fellowship requires of us. It requires that we humbly submit ourselves. All of our wants, all of our choices, all of our leanings and fears to the logic of the gospel. True fellowship requires that we treat others, no matter what society or our own hearts may say about them. It requires that we treat them the same way that Christ treated us. Fellowship requires humility. So that's the first thing. The second thing that fellowship requires is vulnerability. It may make some of you cringe, but we, really, we just need to utilize the word y'all more. See, it's just so helpful in clarifying when someone is speaking about you individually or y'all collectively. Other languages have these distinctions, but we, for whatever reason, in English, we just like to sort it out and struggle through the context and try to pick it up there. And so in our English translations, it's hard to tell the difference between when Paul is using the singular or the plural word, version of the word you. But, but Paul wasn't limited to English, and he uses the great Greek words available to him. See, I say that fellowship requires vulnerability because while this is a personal letter addressing a personal matter, 
between Philemon and Onesimus, I need, I need us to hear this, Paul expects it to be read by everybody. In verses one and two, he addresses it to Philemon, our beloved worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. The letter is not only sent to Philemon, it's sent to everybody. And in verse 25, the plural version of the word you reappears in his benediction to the community. Paul's showing us here that, that the Christian community doesn't keep secret sins. We don't work out challenges in isolation. We do these things together. But let's just be honest. Can we talk for a second? We just really don't like that. We don't like that. Because this doesn't allow us to say, that's my business, you just stay out of it. We can't say, these, these are my kids. And I'll parent them the way that I believe is fit. You just, please just stay out of it. We can't say, yeah, maybe I drank a little bit too much at that New Year's Eve party last night. But that's really my business. And I'd, I'd, I'd appreciate it if you'd just stay out of it. We can't say, this is my romantic life. And it's not hurting you. I don't care about your interpretation of what scripture says. I'd appreciate it if you just stay out of it. Let me deal with it on my own. Now, don't get me wrong. This is not permission to be gossips. The gospel of Jesus Christ does not allow us to go around slandering our brothers and sisters. It doesn't allow us to go around tearing them down in order to make ourselves feel a little bit better. It doesn't allow us to go around changing facts to, to fit the narrative that we've contrived. But listen to this. This is absolutely permission to be involved in making one another holy. It's permission to bring the gospel to bear on every single circumstance that life throws at you and your brothers and sisters around you. Paul is saying that true fellowship with one another in Christ requires vulnerability. And so that's the second thing. The third thing, and finally, we see self-sacrifice. In a sense, what this letter shows us is a spiritual father who's willing to sacrifice of himself to see that his kids, whom he loves, are cared for. Which I'm sure, when, you, when we put it that way, that, that sounds pretty familiar. Paul famously wrote in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And here in Philemon, we see Paul living that out. His life is so identified with Christ that his instinct in this situation is to pay a debt that he doesn't owe to see that Onesimus, his child in the faith, would be set free. Look at verse 18. If Onesimus has wronged you at all, or owes you anything. Charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. See, some folks think that, that Onesimus may have stolen from Philemon when he escaped. Or, or maybe he's responsible for whatever financial losses Philemon would have incurred while he was gone. But Paul puts himself and his bank account on the line to cover whatever the cost may be to ensure that Philemon has no possible reasons left, to ensure that Onesimus be set free. 
And this isn't just Paul paying lip service. For, and this isn't just a man in prison saying like, yeah, yeah, put it on me, but I'm not going to actually be able to pay you. No, because just a few verses later, Paul's planning to come to Philemon soon. He's going to have an opportunity to make his yes be yes in this matter. See, each of these implications of fellowship with one another are implications of fellowship with us because they are implications of fellowship with Christ. They're intrinsic to what it means to be in fellowship with Christ because these are all ways that our fellowship was purchased and created. In his letter to Philemon, Paul writes, or excuse me, to the Philippians, Paul writes, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account, account equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking a form of a servant. That word servant is slave. Same word. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus humbled himself to the form of a slave and then was exalted to the right hand of the Father so that by faith, those of us who are truly slaves to sin would be exalted in our humility with one another. Jesus became vulnerable. He became killable so that by faith in his finished work, we'd be willing to be vulnerable with him and with one another. Jesus emptied himself to the point of death, sacrificing himself to pay the penalty of punishment that we owed so that nothing would keep us from following him by faith now. This is the logic of gospel fellowship. And now in these same ways, by the Holy Spirit powerfully at work within us, we can extend this same gospel fellowship of Christ to those around us. We treat our fellow saints the same way that Christ treated us. We've been given a communion of saints, a unity that Christ bled and died to purchase. And that's the life that we are now called into together. We're not bound by mere affinity, but by Christ and his gospel of grace. And it's this gospel of God's grace to sinful people who do not deserve it that now motivates us to extend that same grace and peace to one another. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank